Geico presents, oh, uh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. Contour from Cox has all your favorites, all in one place. And with the Contour Remote, you can use your voice to find them on live TV, on demand, and streaming apps like Netflix, Prime Video, and more. See Cox.com for details. This episode is brought to you in part by Playful Chameleon Fingerless Gloves by Yvette Strand. They're fingerless gloves from recycled materials, correct? Yeah. Yes. And they're perfect for the chilly autumn weather. Yeah. It's, it's autumn. autumn. It's autumn. <laughs> if you didn't know. They're great to keep your hands and arms warm and cozy on an autumn evening stroll, writing or reading your favorite art history book. You can find a pair for yourself at PlayfulChameleon.com. And if you want to check them out, you can also check out Altered Couture, where they were featured. Playful Chameleon. Check them out. Which is also just the cutest thing. It is. I like chameleons. (laughs) (laughs) Art History Babes giveaway. Halloween giveaway. Ooh. Spooky. (laughs) All you have to do is... Post a picture on your Instagram of you in your super creative Halloween costume. Tag the Art History Babes, and then in the comment, tell us your favorite episode. The winner will receive a special festive package. (laughs) A fall-themed goodie bag that will include an Art History Babes coffee mug. As well as yet-to-be-decided fall goodies. And (laughs) it will be great. It's going to be Great. And a handwritten letter by the yes. Art History Babe. Yes. <laughs> I'll sign it in cursive. Me cursive. Too. Cursive. I'll practice my signature first. Too. We'll get <laughs> out the quill and ink. Oh, yeah. And we'll go old school. Mm-hmm. And a, and a, does anyone have a wax stamp? Oh, I wish. Actually, mm-hmm. I might have access to a wax stamp. So maybe a wax stamp. <laughs> Someone has access to a quill and a wax stamp. We are we're lovers of all things Halloween and we really appreciate a quality Halloween costume. So please tag us in your pictures of you all done up in your Halloween costume. We're so excited. We're looking Judge forward it. to seeing them all. And yeah, the winner will get a fun little package. It'll be a fun thing. It's gonna be fun. <laughs> From Cabernet to Montmartre, they're here to slay the art history babes. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Nat. I'm Ginny. And we are the art history babes. Yeah. Oh, man. We're recording live from... My new cottage. Yeah. So cute, you guys. We love the cottage so life. Cute. Yeah. <laughs> We're just a bunch of cottage babes. Cottage dwellers. <laughs> Gnomes. <laughs> Gnomes. I feel like a gnome often. Yeah, as do I. I oh, Just that little, like, hermit life. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> I like it. It's, it's very pleasant. to read and ponder one's life. It's one's, one's place <laughs> in the world. Yeah. I want to find a cottage. I know. You you next. I know. I need one. Yeah. You'll find your little cottage. This is my second one, and when I actually told a friend about it, he was just like, you really love 
living in cottages behind people's houses, don't you? It's nice. <laughs> it's like, it's perfect. Like, mm-hmm. if you ever have the opportunity, find a cottage. Yeah. See? I miss mine. Yeah. I mean, I live in a guest house behind my parents' house, but it's not cottagey enough. Like, yeah. That's true. It's, it's a little, little too modern. It's too modern. It's a weird layout. It's like a giant Jack and Jill of, like, two studios. Oh. Think about it like that. Like, interesting. Like, giant rectangular rooms mirroring yeah. one another between it with a kitchen and a bathroom between. Yeah. And it's kind of eerie. <laughs> yeah, you get freaked out there sometimes. I do. I have some weird <laughs> dreams. Like, I actually am proud of myself when I sleep there and don't have weird dreams, which is never fully through the night, but, like, Matthew will leave at, like, 4.30, and then I'll go back to sleep till, like, 8.30 or 9. Yeah. And if I can do that without getting, like, creeped out or having weird dreams, I'm, like... Yeah. That's a win. That's yeah. a win. What are they? So are they like pool house related dreams? Yeah. Like what oh, happens? Yeah. Oh. Like um, <laughs> yeah. In the worst ones, um, I can hear someone walking around the room, mm. but I no, can't move. Uh uh-uh. uh Oh, so is it like a um, sleep like, paralysis? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, but I but I don't know that it's full sleep paralysis because. I don't know. I've, like, looked it up, and sometimes they're different. Like, because sometimes I can get up. Like, I've had them where, like, I hear people outside. There's a huge slider. Like, that's how you get in. I have curtains up over it, but obviously, like, if there's ever light outside, it just, like, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. you see the silhouettes of, like, everything out there. Yeah. Um, which is very creepy, especially since we have motion lights. So that's happened before. Yes. I've been woken Ooh. up in the middle of the night, and then the light comes on out there. And I'm just oh, like, no. fuck me right now. <laughs> I'm... I'm, I'm don't I'm like going to die. Yeah, I, this is why I can't awful. listen to my favorite murder. Yeah. Because if I listen to too much of that <laughs> shit, I will just never sleep. Yeah. And we're, like, we're we're moving into the spookiest time of year, too. Right? True. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Very true. Yep. So, I, yeah. I don't want to be staying there too long. I've only been in there, like, a week now. We're yeah. gonna we're we're recording from there next time, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys will get to weigh in. <laughs> we'll get there, and you'll be like, "What's your problem?" It's not bad. Like during the day, it's great. Whatever. Just at night, it's so eerie. You hear everything in the walls, like all the piping and stuff's just so loud. So there's so many creaks. I don't know. I'm a chicken, you guys. Just, that's what <laughs> I it comes mean, down to. It's better to be wary and afraid than not afraid and clueless. Well, then like, I'm set. You gotta you gotta be aware. That's actually what I tell myself when like my anxiety is acting up I to like because anyone who has anxiety knows that a lot of times it is compounded because you get mad at yourself for being yeah, anxious yeah so like when my anxiety is acting up I try to remind myself that anxiety is actually just really good survival instincts just your body is going into fight or flight when it doesn't need to mm-hmm. but that means my survival instincts are really strong and that is a good quality to have it is yeah it really is no, yeah. yeah no my mom told me um a while back, I wasn't at her house when this happened because I would have flipped out. But she, my mom lives like kind of up around like a very woodsy area, so there's a very lot cute. of deer. Your, yeah, your mom's house is yeah. just the best. It's like right. a grown-up cottage. Yeah. It's, it's like a Snow White. Yeah, home. it really yeah, is. But, um, so but it's cute. in an amazing location yeah. in the Oakland Hills. Yeah. <laughs> no, but um, she said the other night because she has a motion detector light as well, and we have uh, she has a deck where you know little stairs come up to the deck, and like her house isn't closed off, so like critters can just like come right up. They do it often, like all kinds. Like there's even little fox that run around there. Aww. But um, this night she like got woken up and the motion detector light went off and then she heard the sound of like hoofs clomping on the deck but like really slowly and I was like Black Phillip <laughs> <laughs> of course it's 
Black Phillip. Black Phillip. Um, but I think it was just like... Do you wish to live deliciously? <laughs> Who's Black Phillip? Black Phillip. <laughs> sorry. sorry. <laughs> that has to No, that's a, good, that's a good question because I'm sure many people don't yeah. know who Black Phillip is. Um, you, listeners. That movie, The Witch... I feel like we've probably we've, talked about it. We've um, talked about it many times. You guys have. I've never seen it. We talked it's, about it on the episode about black. Oh yeah, we talked about black Philip. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. Also not here for because it. Um, so black Philip is a black goat, and a lot of times the devil goats. is associated with yeah. goats. Unfortunately, um, no fault. To goats. Yeah, I'm <laughs> um, no goat. No fault of the goat. <laughs> <laughs> but when I heard like. Hooves. Oh yeah, clomping. It's definitely black. Middle film. of the night, black film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in the movie, the creepy little children who are literally the creepiest part of the yeah, movie. Yeah, they are. They just like run around. They're like black Philip, black Philip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Wait, creepy. Safe to say, I'm never watching this movie. It's a great movie. It, it is. really is. It is, and like scary, but not like jump out at you scary that much. It's more disturbing than yeah. anything. There was one scene I couldn't watch. But yeah, other than that, I was fine. And I'm. If you can make it through the first like 10 minutes or so you're probably all right honestly what's more scary about it is i feel like a very accurate depiction of what puritanical life was in early america exactly because that shit sucks yeah well one it's beautifully shot like the director is amazing like it is so creepy but just from an artistic perspective the way the shots are done is amazing it just makes it so much creepier and like so much more interesting but exactly the the portrayal of puritanical American life and, like, witch hunts is horrifying. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, But, yeah, it's a great movie. We've talked about it, I think, at least three times on the podcast now, but you should all really watch it. (laughs) We'll see. Maybe once I'm out of the guest house, we'll talk about it. We could have a little Halloween movie night and we could all watch it together. That would be fun. Today... Uh, we're going to kind of mix things up a little bit. We're going to do a listener mail at the beginning because it directly led to this episode. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was really excited when I saw this email because it's a topic that I am really interested in. Uh, so it was a good suggestion. So give us your suggestions because we really do take a lot of them to heart. So this is from Kim from the Netherlands. Ooh, uh, um, she says, Dear Art History Babes... Uh, my reason to write, besides looking for an excuse to compliment you, is that in the sixth episode, she's earlier talking about a radio podcast series that's all in Dutch. None of us speak it, unfortunately. Otherwise, we totally listen to it. But um, Yeah, it sounded really cool, but <laughs> yeah. I was like, I would have no luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in one of these episodes, they discuss a woman who, for feminist reasons, attacked a painting with an axe. And then in March of 1914, feminist Mary Richardson slashed a Velasquez painting in the National Gallery in London as a protest to the imprisonment of one of her fellow activists. On first sight, it seems she might have picked this painting at random, but it's a female nude that seems to me highly questionable. I didn't do any research on the topic besides listening to the radio series, but I thought it might be interesting to you. Again, I love your podcast. Keep on rocking. And if you ever happen to visit the Netherlands again... Mm -hmm. Consider visiting the Kroller Mueller Museum. <laughs> um, or maybe the Reich Museum. I'm Reich. sorry. Reich's Reich's okay. Museum. God. I know that we one. almost went there. Yeah, it's right by the Van Gogh yeah. Museum, the Reich. Cool. We, oh, we saw yeah. it from afar, from across a, across a field. Yes. There's yeah. lots of Vermeers and Rachel Roish. Lots of her mm. work is in the Reich's mm. Museum. Mm. All your, your, your Dutch homies. 
Yeah, we Dutch doing, homies, yeah, pretty much. They were doing good shit. They were. Um, so, Kim, thank you for the suggestion to do an episode on iconoclasm. Here it is for you and everyone else. So, the first thing, I took a seminar a while back that was on cultural heritage, was like the overarching theme, and a lot of what was talked about in there is iconoclasm and vandalism. So, I'll start out by just kind of giving an overview of iconoclasm and vandalism and how they may differ, and also both of the terms have changed over time and taken on kind of a wider umbrella of meaning with the progression of history. So I'll get into that a little bit. But a really good book, and we might have mentioned this before when we listed some of our favorite books about art, but if not, this book, The Destruction of Art, Iconoclasm and Vandalism Since the French Revolution by uh, Dario Gamboni is really, really good for Anyone who's interested in different examples of iconoclasm and vandalism, and it discusses it in all the political and religious contexts that it's fallen into, um, leading up to the French Revolution, but then mostly French Revolution and after. So, If I'm not mistaken, he wrote a lot about things like restoration and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, I think I used him as a, a source at one point. So just like ideas... That involve the lifetime of an artwork. Yeah, totally. And he's got some really big, cool ideas in this book. Highly recommend it. So mostly, he explores the relationship between modern art and its destruction. Starting with iconoclasm and how it first emerged and really what it meant in its kind of origin. So iconoclasm in the beginning was primarily in regards to the destruction of religious images that were deemed heretical. When you're talking about icons, usually icons are paintings on smaller scales because they're meant to be for devotional purposes. So you'll have a painting of a saint or like the Virgin Mary. And the point when icons first started emerging during the Middle Ages, and they were super popular in Byzantium, that you look at these paintings and you pray to them you know, for whatever you're praying for. And they're meant to be like a bridgeway or help enact prayer and reflection. But a lot of people on the opposite end felt that icons were heretical because people were worshiping the images themselves and not actually the divine beings that they represented. And so people started destroying icons and those were called um, iconoclasts. So that's the first kind of example we have. Which is just like, I don't know, I've never quite understood that argument, Mm -hmm. this idea, because images have power because of the meaning we give them. So if you're worshipping, you're not worshipping a piece of paper, you're worshipping the icon, you're worshipping the image of the thing, which is the thing. So I, I personally... I've never understood that, like, that religious argument that it's somehow not worshipping what it represents. Right. You know what I mean? I kind of get it, actually. Not to, I mean, play devil's advocate. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) I totally understand how, like, easy it would be to act like that thing in itself is what's holy versus what it represents. And I think that's what it comes down to. Like, let's say your house catches on fire and you run back in and risk your life to get this icon. And it's like, the icon doesn't change the being that it represents, but that person has put so much meaning into it that Mm -hmm. the thought of it being destroyed is like, 
it, does that make sense? It like yeah, takes on it yes. takes on a life outside of the um, actual spiritual being, God, whatever that it represents. And I remember reading somewhere the Byzantine era mm-hmm. had a lot to do with intersections of religion. So yeah. like yeah. there was a decent Muslim population mm-hmm. right. and right. Um, Jewish, and mm-hmm. those two religions specifically did not, not have yeah. yeah a lot mm-hmm. of figural representation yeah. Yeah. And stuff, and so that was influenced zero yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. No, so, I, yeah. I, I think that argument, or putting it in that context, like the idea of, yeah, running back into a burning building, yeah. that definitely makes sense. I would I would agree with the argument in that context, right. for it's sure. It's a fine line, though, between, yeah, between having a representational object that represents something greater and putting too much weight on that object, which is what makes iconoclasm so interesting, is mm-hmm. you can apply it to, like, so many things today. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. I think for me, part of it is just... My, my Catholic upbringing. Oh, yeah. And we fucking love our icons. Oh, yeah. It's true. all about the icons. Like, yeah. I had to go to church every Friday in uh-huh. school, and I, I didn't mind, because I would just, like, stare at all the cool art and be like, yeah, praise Jesus. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and there's a lot to that. You know who didn't like that shit? The Protestants. Yeah. <laughs> so, next, Protestant Reformation. This is another huge upsurge in iconoclasm. So, Protestants, starting with Martin Luther, a lot of the problem that they had with the Catholic Church, well, they had many issues, but in terms of art, um, they felt that a lot of Catholic art was too extravagant and flashy and materialistic and expensive, and it was taking away from what was actually in the Bible and what they were meant to be practicing as Christians and all that. So Protestant art is very different. You know, like when you're looking at 17th century, like Dutch still lives, you know, they have ways of representing religious lessons and morals and all that without painting necessarily devotional things with saints. Like it might be more kind of subtle where you have a still life with a turned over wine glass and kind of decaying fruit to show like, okay, you're going to die. Everyone is mortal. With that, you have kind of these disparities between art that is all about creating and kind of illustrating these divine figures. And that is considered a good thing. And then other religions like the Protestants who are not as into that and start destroying icons. Um, in a lot of cases, these icons were already very old at that point. But so you have like people who are destroying icons feeling like they're doing God's work and they're doing the right thing. And then people on the other end being like they're savage, they're ignorant, they just don't appreciate art. And that's a label that iconoclasts have had starting around then and has continued since. So before I get into art that was destroyed and art depicting destruction of art, I want to get into kind of the terminology a little bit more of iconoclasm versus vandalism. So iconoclasm has roots in Greek for words that involve breaking and images. Uh, Later during the Reformation, we see the term iconoclast emerge, uh, meaning a breaker or destroyer of images, especially ones meant for religious veneration. After the Reformation, especially when we're looking at the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century, there is more widespread destruction of art, not just religious, but also political and symbolic. And this is where the term vandalism from the French word vandalisme comes along. And the term vandal was used to describe barbaric behavior since the 17th century. The vandals were um, 
uh, East Germanic tribe that invaded a lot of Europe, and they were Vandal came out of that. And so Vandalism is actually the preferred or more often used term for the French Revolution because a lot of what they were destroying wasn't necessarily religious. It was busts of the monarchy. It was art painted by artists who worked for the kings. Um, So it was really tied more to the ancient regime and the monarchy and kind of the new French Republic trying to erase this memory of the previous controlling body of France. So iconoclasm grew to apply to the destruction of or opposition to any form of art. It no longer is solely religious And vandalism is largely used to denote ignorant, barbaric destruction of culture, of history, of art. So the semantics and linguistic history aside, the destruction of art has long been controversial, celebrated, villainized, and um, repeated over many, many centuries and still goes on today, which I'll get into a tiny bit at the end. So it doesn't apply solely to paintings, but to sculpture, uh, photography, architecture, artifacts, and more. You know, when we're looking again at some of the early examples of iconoclasm, there's also images of iconoclasts in art. Goya did this drawing. It's on the cover of this book. We'll put it up on the website. But the way that (laughs) artists are representing iconoclasts, they depict them like these really dumb-looking drunk dudes. He's, like, pointing. It's like finger guns. Yeah, (laughs) and his eyes are closed, and it's literally titled, He Doesn't Know What He's Doing. (laughs) And then there's... Yeah, there's another one where the guy... Like, another drawing, this guy is looking back at the viewer, and he just looks like a dumb, goofy guy. (laughs) And... It's, it's really interesting because you have these, like, different sides. There's always two sides, at least, of course. But how other artists who felt very threatened by iconoclasts and felt that iconoclasts were, you know, these destroyers of art. And in a lot of cases, they were. I'm not, like, on the side of iconoclasts. But it's more just, you know, like, here's the other guy. Like, he, he oh just he is truly chip- looks like a caveman. He does. <laughs> Yeah, he really he just, does. He just stumbled into a museum. Yeah, this feels, guy uh, looks like he's never been to a museum and, like, just walked in here and sees, like, a beautiful bust of a lady and is like, I'm going to chip her up with my <laughs> my hammer. <laughs> my big hammer. <laughs> so uh, It's funny that they're not depicted in more of a... Um, uh, sinister? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly yeah. the word I was thinking. Yeah. Sinister word. Yeah. yeah. I think in a lot of cases that's because... It was easier, especially for people in Catholic countries like Goya in Spain. Um, Like, if you're an artist in a Catholic country and there's, you know, Protestant Reformation and there, you know, there was so much conflict between Catholics and Protestants for, like, decades and decades and decades. So that if you're, like, a Catholic artist in a Catholic country, you're going to look at these people as, like, stupid. You know, Mm -hmm. they're just, like, ignorant. And it was easier to look at them that way and be like, well, they just don't understand good art. They just don't get it. And so that's why I think a lot of times they're depicted like drunk idiots. And it's more more insulting than like, because yeah, when you kind of throw in like something more sinister, evil, that does kind of go hand in hand with kind of being smart. Like you have to be smart to be kind of like evil or I don't know. The evil mastermind. Yeah. Whereas if you just call someone dumb, that's, I don't know, I think it's worse. He's a big dumb idiot. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. 
It's, yeah. Um, Levels of insults. I know, right? <laughs> the hierarchy of insults. <laughs> and then, of course, when you think of revolutions, there's a lot of destruction of art in many revolutions. So what's really of interest to me is art commemorating the destruction of art. And a lot Definitely. of times, yeah, it's just like, whoa. There's so many um, layers. <laughs> it's so meta. Yeah. <laughs> so fucking meta. <laughs> and particularly with the French Revolution, a lot of this was done through the form of prints. You know, prints, you know, they're so reproducible. And, you know, I have some interesting ones where there's this one that's like a um, personification of the new French Republic who's clubbing and beheads a bust of um, King Louis the 16th, 17th, or... I'm so bad at Roman numerals. 16th? 16th. Boom. Yes. There it is. I have to just um, go with my instincts. I don't actually know Roman numerals. I just, the first think, number that pops in my head, I know up to I a certain guess. point. Because X, like, X is 10, V is 5, 1. So yeah, because yeah, when yeah. the 1 comes after the V, it's a plus. Bigger, when it yeah. comes before... Okay, yeah. <laughs> got it. People we are got there. At us right now. We, we did it. We, we got have our there. master's degrees. We swear. We smart. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know you have like a lot of these. Is Mariah here? Mariah's here. Woo. Come on in. Hello. Hey. We're gonna take a quick break because oh, we have a friend. So we're doing extra episodes. <laughs> We're doing extra episodes, everyone. <laughs> Bonus episodes for your listening pleasure. VIP. Super VIP. Super cool. All the time. Yes. All you have to do is head over to our Patreon. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com slash arthistorybapes. Mm-hmm. You can donate $1. You yeah. can donate $5. Yeah. You can donate $100. Whoa. That'd be awesome. <laughs> you can donate whatever your little heart desires, and you will have access to monthly bonus episodes. So if you just cannot get enough of the art history, babes, you should definitely check it out. Yeah. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. And the episodes are great. We've yeah. done one. It was and great. And we're going to do more. And it was good. More. It was really good. It was really, yeah. it was really topical and really <laughs> <It was> interesting. <laughs> very relevant. Yeah. Everybody check it out. And, uh, thanks. Thanks so much. Modern fertility. Dang, I really wish I could sing because I wanted to follow that tune, but I cannot sing. I can't sing either, but I just, I like making little jingles. How about it, Nat? I mean, you probably thought about your next step in your career relationship, but what about planning for a baby or a metaphorical baby? Or or planning for not a baby. All of those totally reasonable <laughs> options. Exactly. As a woman, we kind of have to make a decision to either have or not yeah. have babies. And Modern Fertility is here to help with that decision making. Modern Fertility is a quick and easy hormone test you can take at home. So if you're thinking about trying for a baby or you want to know maybe what your options are for the future or or if you just want to know more information about kind of how all that works and your hormone levels and just, you know, generally be informed about your reproductive health, which is a great thing to be informed of, Modern Fertility is here to help. So I was able to take it and got my results back within like eight days. 
pretty quick. It took me to the website where they had all my information, and I'm happy to say that nothing came back alarming. It was really easy to understand, and they use very simple language, but they also have options where you can read into the different hormones more closely. So if you do have something that may be slightly out of whack, you can read more about it and figure out you know, how to raise or lower or what that might mean for your day-to-day life. It's really interesting. Or your fertility, I guess. I was kind of just looking at it for my day-to-day. But um, speaking from experience, like, yeah, I definitely feel a little more empowered just knowing that all of my hormones are working and doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, that is definitely good news. Also, it is very affordable compared to similar testing. Um, oftentimes, that kind of testing can cost over $1,000. But with Modern Fertility, you can get the exact same information for just $159. That's such a good price. Yeah. Plus, you can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse once you get your results. So you can get answers to questions that you might have, specific questions that are related to your results. And that is really valuable. Yeah. So it's just great information to have, very affordable price. Very easy to do. Comfort of your own home. Don't even have to go to the doctor's office. And right now, Modern Fertility is offering Art History Babes listeners $20 off their test when you go to modernfertility.com slash historybabes. That's $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash historybabes. Modernfertility.com slash historybabes. Modern fertility. And we're back talking about iconoclasm. Yes. So, prints depicting the destruction of art during the French Revolution, but there's also prints and paintings commemorating um, the dismantling and destruction of buildings, of architecture. So, uh, there's actually a lot of paintings and prints of the dismantling of the Bastille from Bastille Day, you know, they storm it, it's a big deal for the revolution. And so these are all symbols of the ancient regime of the monarchy. And so destroying and visually recording that destruction as a means of removing a previous political entity, yet celebrating and commemorating that destruction itself. So the iconoclasm here is politically significant, or iconoclasm and vandalism, you can, I'm going to use the terms interchangeably, and we can still see this today. So an example, I'll just do kind of a more contemporary one, but there's a lot. Uh, Stalin statue slash monument was torn down in Budapest in 1956 during um, Hungary's October Revolution, and there are a lot of pictures. Of course, now it's easier and easier to visually record, in that way, celebrate the destruction of art. And then you have Saddam Hussein's statue, which was toppled in Baghdad in 2003. I'll post the link for that video. Have you guys ever seen it? No. It's wild. And I would like to see An American that. tank ends up having to get in and, like, pull it down, because people were, like, going at it with sledgehammers and trying to get it down, but they couldn't because it was massive. And then an American soldier, like, crawls up and puts an American flag over Saddam Hussein's face. It's nuts. Like, and people are so excited, and you, just now you're like, shit goes so wrong. Shit <laughs> <laughs> goes so wrong. That's but, crazy. Yeah, it's really, yeah, really, like really interesting. And, of course, now we've talked about this off and on on the podcast, um, Confederate monuments in the States 
um, and statues are toppled over and people spit on them and kick them and it's obviously a really contentious controversial thing. So it's not just solely political iconoclasm these days, they're still religiously motivated iconoclasm. Um, so the Buddhas of Bamiyan were huge um, statues from the 6th, 7th, uh, 7th century, and they were cut out of rock in the Bamiyan Valley of central Afghanistan. And in 2001, the Taliban blew them up as a part of an iconoclastic campaign and filmed it. ISIS has also destroyed and filmed destruction of architecture, artifacts, and art. And really, regardless of time period, religious belief, or lack thereof, political climate method of destruction or medium destroyed, iconoclasm and vandalism are incredibly emotionally charged, and it's been going on for centuries in all of these different contexts. Um, so whenever I think like a monument or a statue or a building or a work of art is intentionally destroyed, it always speaks to something mm -hmm. deeper. It's not usually just kind of like surface level, like, oh, sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but for the most part, there's some really deep meanings um, underneath it. So that is my introduction to iconoclasm and vandalism. And just to add to the Bamiyan yeah. Buddhas, um, I was looking this up earlier too, um, yeah. and apparently they have put in projections where they used to be. So there's oh, like light projections of I didn't the know that. Buddhas. So now oh, it's cool. like, yeah. Um, so it's like with um, the Twin Towers and they shoot up the mm -hmm. lights. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. Kind of a unique, oh. cool take on it. Yeah. Didn't know that till today. Right. Anyway. All right. <laughs> well, the layers. The layers to iconoclasm. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Tell me about it. It's like an onion. It really yeah. is. So this is going to be kind of a, a theory-heavy-ish episode because I'm also going to talk about some differentiations in a little more contemporary setting. So Bruno Latour is a French writer, philosopher, and he wrote a paper called What is Iconoclash? So not iconoclasm, but iconoclash, which is a term I'm assuming he coined. Um, a really cool name for a band. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. What would be? <laughs> What's up, Austin? We're iconoclasm. <laughs> <laughs> of course they're in Austin. <laughs> so, Ginny already did a great job of defining iconoclasm, but I'm just going to kind of frame it in a different way. In reference to iconoclash, iconoclasm is when we know why someone's breaking something or what their motivations are. So, in all the examples we've talked about, we understand the political, religious motives for destroying a lot of these images. Like, we can we can rationalize it even if we think that the actual acts are irrational. Mm -hmm. And iconoclash is when you see kind of similar examples of destruction or vandalism, but you're, you have to think a little bit harder about the motives or why or who it's affecting. So there's just kind of a, an overall question mark over the whole thing and it's yeah. a little more provocative it's um it's more avant-garde it is and the avant-garde is definitely something that comes up in this a lot so those are kind of the differentiations and the i like the way he describes or defines iconoclash he says when one does not know one hesitates one is troubled by an action for which there is no way to know without further inquiry whether it is destructive or constructive <laughs> <laughs> you wanna you wanna say that again? Yeah, yeah. That was a loud plane. Post airplane. A, <laughs> a little airport right near here. <laughs> 
that why there's like an airport themed pet hospital that I passed? Probably. What? Yeah, there's it a was, little like a I don't know how those things relate. That's at what all. I thought. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's so odd. So the way that Latour uh, defines iconoclash is when one does not know, one hesitates, one is troubled by an action for which there is no way to know without further inquiry whether it is destructive or constructive. There's just a lot more um, room for people to parse through this kind of destruction. So in his essay, he focuses on three different realms with which iconoclash can occur. So he does science, religion, and art. And Mm -hmm. it should be noted that this is all kind of like modern contemporary. For sure. Um, So, yeah, because I feel like iconoclasm as it started really kind of phases out mostly as we get into modern times. There's not so much of trying to stamp out of other religions or, or religious objects, it, it takes on a more modern form. And Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, science and art being added into the mix. He goes into talking about religion and the idea of the human hand lessening meaning in religious art. So the more that you can see kind of, like, human-made qualities, the less transcendental the item is Mm -hmm. so if you have like the veil of mary that's super holy because it was like bestowed to humans from you you know what i mean it's like if if something lands in your lap that's holy it's a lot more powerful than a painted icon essentially so then what that translates into for contemporary art is that's all that contemporary art is is man-made objects essentially Mm -hmm. um the human hand is everywhere in contemporary art. I mean, sometimes that's really all there is. Yeah. Um, the human has become God. <laughs> yes. Yes. So you could see... Very, very Nietzsche-esque. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. And nihilism ties into all this, and it's all, it's all there. So modern art essentially is the epitome of breaking down and experimenting with what art is and what it can be. So it is almost just like a destruction in itself. The evolution of modern art is kind of all about destruction and reduction and whatnot. Deconstruction. Deconstruction, yeah. perfect. And then reconstruction from that. Right. Um, and he calls it a maniacal joy in self-destruction. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I thought <it> was great. <laughs> I had to write that one down. Yeah, so contemporary art as iconoclash is basically defacement and refacement as he puts it. So he then goes on to talk about the five different types of iconoclastic gestures And this is really to set up how to figure out what form of iconoclash this is. Like, the motives, the effects that it will have, the effects that it has before it's destroyed, you know, all of these things. So the first is the inner goals of the icon smashers. So Mm. what do they they hope to achieve by destroying this object, this icon? The roles they give to the destroyed images. So what does this image symbolize that they feel like needs to be destroyed? The effects this destruction has on those who cherish the images. So how are these people going to react to this image being destroyed? Um, How this reaction is interpreted by the iconoclasts, what they're hoping to get from it. The effects of destruction on the destroyer's own feelings. So there's a lot of layers here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just wanted to bring in a contemporary example. Um, the one that seemed most obvious to me are two of, and I'm, there's multiple, but two of Ai Weiwei's pieces. Ones we've talked about on our Ai Weiwei episode, yeah. but um, Dropping of a Han Dynasty Urn. So the photographed series, it's a triptych of him dropping a 
Han Dynasty or <laughs> I was like, what dynasty was that from? Uh, the Han Dynasty. <laughs> Again, that is Han. H-A-N. Um, yeah, so this kind of, I feel like, is a great example of this iconoclash. I mean, he is destroying an item, but you can ask all of these questions. Like, why... Why is he destroying it? What is he hoping to get from people yeah. who look at it? And totally. people do react. People get very upset. Oh, yeah, they do. We yeah. we looked at this work in theory, didn't we? In our theory seminar. Oh, I think so. Um, where we were kind of talking about these issues. And mm-hmm. we, we looked at it. And I, I mean, I fucking love Ai Weiwei. And I'm like, I love that work. I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. But I remember someone else in our, <laughs> in our seminar was just like very appalled. <laughs> And so, I mean, and that was in a class of like what eight people were in that class, you know. So you get very differing reactions and feelings Mm -hmm. to something like that, which I think speaks to why it's such a great piece. Yes, because it evokes those kinds of feelings in people. Mm -hmm. Totally. And and then the other example is again a Han Han urn, but it's the Han jar overpainted with Coca Cola logo. Which has been attacked, yes? Has yes, it, yeah. it has. So yeah. there's like another layer. Another layer, yeah. <laughs> so he's taking his ends. urn and he's painting over it with one of the most like famous capitalist, capitalist imagery, <laughs> Coca Cola logo. And so to a lot of people, that is like the defacement, the destruction of this urn because you're covering it with this capitalist imagery. And in some ways, the destruction of history. Yes. And then you get a visitor trying to destroy that. And it's just like, oh. Like, when does it end? Right? (laughs) I know. (laughs) Tell me about it. There's a lot of I think about it often. (laughs) Will it end? Will it ever end? No, it won't. Never, no, ever, never, never, no. ever, ever. People like to smash things. Like yeah. that is just a human impulse. Totally. I remember in my my theater days, like when I was involved in theater, and we'd have strike at the end of a play, and like in my head, it would like I was always really excited because I thought we'd get to like smash shit, but it was never like that. Oh. It was like collecting nails and like. like oh, wait, what's strike? Strike is when you take the set down. Oh, okay. Oh. Theater lingo. <laughs> I was like, did you go out on strike? No. Um, so, yeah, after after the run... of credits? After the run of a show, strike, and it has a very, like, physical yeah. name, yeah. strike. Strike is when you disassemble the set, and Got everyone it. takes part in it. You know, yeah. you have to be there for it. And it, I, like, would always get excited because in my head, even though I did many of these, my head... Yeah. I was imagining, like, breaking shit and just, like, tearing down these sets. But it was never like that. It was always a disappointment. Yeah. And But it's just, like, that human impulse to just, you just want to smash things, you know? I think they have, like, sites now where you can go and just fuck shit up. Like, you can pay money to put on, like, a helmet and a mask and stuff and just, like destroy shit with a bat Whoa. yeah i actually really want to check it out it sounds like an amazing way to just release yeah it's attention. like a therapy i think it's like a form of therapy yeah that's the idea sure. behind it. i think there might be one in sacramento actually is there we could do that yeah let's go break some shit <laughs> i was gonna say i can think of like four people off the top of my head that would want to go and just hit shit oh my god that'd yeah. be so fun if we went and got drinks and then went and just broke some shit that would be like oh so fun we should would, definitely yeah. do that 
Okay, so so make sure you get on our Instagram because at some undisclosed point in the future there will be videos of us just breaking shit. I feel like somehow I'm gonna get hurt doing this. Yeah, so I'm gonna do it anyway. Yeah, some I'm gonna like hit something and it's gonna like bounce back. Right, that's what I imagine. Or like too much momentum and then I just like (laughs) fall. Yeah, something bad. Is that all you got, Nat? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it. So I'm just going to talk about a few little anecdotes of um, basically iconoclasm in the past hundred years or so. I actually, it just came to my mind while we were talking about it. Michelangelo's uh, Pieta was... Yeah. What happened with that? Do any of you know the story? Yeah. It was... Oh. I I don't have any of the details because I just remembered it. I want to say... It was a German tourist, but I want to check myself because I don't want to offend any German tourists because they're about, known for their tourism. How about you tell the story and I'll fact check you as you okay. tell the story. <laughs> so, from what I recall or think I recall, a tourist, possibly German, was in the Vatican and just went at the Pieta with a hammer. I don't remember if there was any logic behind it. And then they pulled him off. <laughs> now the Pieta is separated from people behind glass, I think. It is. Yeah, it's behind mm-hmm. glass. Yes, Bulletproof. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Hungarian-born Australian <laughs> geologist. Okay. Geologist. <laughs> I'll take the L on that. Was he trying to, like, free the rock? <laughs> okay. This is coming off Wikipedia, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, you know how Wikipedia works. Mm. At least I hope you do. Laszlo Toff mm. was a Hungarian-born Australian geologist. He achieved worldwide notoriety when he vandalized Michelangelo's Pieta statue on May 21st, 1972. Yeah. He was not charged with any criminal offense, which is interesting. Um, he was hospitalized in Italy for two years, and on his release... Well, that is perhaps punishment there. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? Especially in the 70s. Yeah. Um, on his release, he was immediately deported to Australia. Look at this Ooh, guy. Real his... creepy looking dude. Oh, he actually kind of yeah. looks like someone we know. Yes, he, he does. does. Oh yes, my I God. thought the same thing. Whoa. What? Uh, <laughs> it all makes sense. <laughs> um, let me okay. see if I can get a few more details. On May 21st, 1972, at 33 years of age, Jesus' traditional age of death, during the Feast of Pentecost, uh, Toss, wielding a geologist's hammer and shouting, I am Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, attacked Michelangelo's Pieta statue in St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City, with 15 blows. How the fuck did he do 15 (laughs) before someone pulled him off the Pieta? but would you jump in if you had a hammer? I don't know. They got those Swiss guards in the Vatican. Those guys aren't messing around. But I, as a a (laughs) civilian, I would not. I know. I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. I'd be like, one hammer to the skull. Sorry, Michelangelo. Like, Do you no guys way. know the start? Why they're always Swiss guards there? One of the popes, I can't remember which one. It was like a, it was a long time ago. It's like either during the Renaissance or a little bit after. Said that he only wanted Swiss guards in that in the Vatican because he couldn't trust the Italian ones because they would be willing to get paid off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, though, it wasn't even the Swiss guards that pulled them off. What? Yeah. Toth was subdued by bystanders, including American sculptor Bob Cassily. Who hit oh. Toth several times before pulling him away from the Pieta. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, oh. this had to have just been a very interesting uh, occurrence. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
That and would craziness. be crazy. Yeah, like, here's a picture of him. It looks whoa. like right after being subdued. Whoa, he kind of looks like ah! a being pulled off of the cross. Oh, <laughs> ah. Wait, we'll put this image on um, on our images because it's very interesting. Oof. But he's yeah being removed from the Pieta, and yeah, it's there's no Swiss guards. They're just like dudes. What? Swiss guards were... Where you at, guys? They're not on top of it. To be fair, I don't think I've ever seen any of them actually inside St. Peter's. More just around, like, the perimeter and yeah. the rest of Vatican City. So that's an interesting one. Glad glad we looked that up real quick. <laughs> uh, another another um, interesting anecdote. Going back to the email that we started this episode with. Mary Richardson was a Canadian suffragette. And on March 10th, 1914, she smuggled a, like, meat cleaver... <laughs> Into the National Gallery in London and slashed the Rockabee Venus by Diego Velasquez. Yeah. Just slashed it. She was protesting the the imprisonment and mistreatment of suffragette and political activist Emmeline Pankhurst. She um, founded the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU. Oh, okay. Uh, So... Kind of super important in suffragette history, and she was one of the suffragettes that got imprisoned and Mm -hmm. starved herself and all of that. Yeah. Jazz. Um, Mary Richardson vandalized this work the day after um, one, Emmeline Pankhurst had been imprisoned multiple times, but Mm -hmm. one of her imprisonments the day after was when this happened. And she wrote a brief statement I have tried to destroy the picture of the most beautiful woman in mythological history as a protest against the government for destroying Mrs. Pankhurst, who is the most beautiful character in modern history. Justice is an element of beauty as much as color and outline on canvas. Mrs. Pankhurst seeks to procure justice for womanhood, and for this she is being slowly murdered by a government of Iscariot politicians. If there is an outcry against my deed, let everyone remember that such an outcry is an hypocrisy so long as they allow the destruction of Mrs. Pankhurst and other beautiful living women, and that unlike the public cease to countenance human destruction, the stones cast against me for the destruction of this picture are each an evidence against them of artistic as well as moral and political humbug and hypocrisy. Right? Yeah. She's a passionate lady. She's very, (laughs) very passionate. Um... So I think I think that kind of sums up her reasoning for it. This is one of those instances where we know exactly why she did it. Yeah. But it's just a very interesting thing on multiple levels because, one, you can't ignore the fact that this is an image. It's an image of a nude woman. An image of a nude woman that has, at, up until this point, had been owned by men, yes. by rich, powerful mm-hmm. men. It was very much created for the male gaze. Totally. We have an object of male desire being slashed by a suffragette. But also, it takes on this other unexpected layer, I think, at least I didn't expect it, of kind of trying to force us to put our priorities in order. Yeah. Like, what is more important, this painting of a woman or an actual woman? Yeah. And that is a very important idea. That's a valid argument. Yeah, and I think on that level, I mean, yeah, not that the former is a bad argument either, you know, slashing images for the male gaze. I get it, but on a 
a deeper level of humanity. I think this argument that why are we so outraged about a painting yeah. of a person yeah. when there are actual people, you mm-hmm. know, dying. For sure. Um, and being mistreated. So I, that was her main argument, which is something to think about. It also, there's an interesting thing with the outrage surrounding the painting. So the painting had recently been accrued by the National Gallery in London, but it was bought as the result of money raised by the public. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a big moment for just London. Like, it was a big... There was a lot of patriotism almost surrounding it, you know? Like, there was this idea of, like, this is... Like, because the public did it. The painting cost 45,000 euro in 1914. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a good amount of money. It had been acquired via public support. So a lot of people were angry because they felt like it was an attack on London and yeah. the people of London. Not that I necessarily agree with that, yeah. but that's, yeah, 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 <laughs> that's yeah. what a lot of people, their outrage had something to do with, like, nationalist concerns, I guess. Yeah. What's also interesting is the argument that she makes that you just read is a good one. Yeah, definitely. I was reading somewhere else in relation to this that she had said something about being bothered about men, like, ogling at it in Mm -hmm. the gallery and stuff. That, I feel like, to bring that part up, because... When you hear her give that whole spiel, right? then obviously the men ogling is secondary, but I feel like people trying to make it primary is, like, trying to lessen the effect of what she did and trying to, like, bring it back down and being like, oh, she just... It's all about like, female sexuality yeah, again, you know? And, like, and that, that's upsetting. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I'm I'm not claiming that that's not part of it and that doesn't no, add a necessary... but to try and make it a bigger piece yeah. of the puzzle than it actually when she made a clear statement Mm -hmm. about what she was trying to say say and granted she probably chose that painting partially yes for that reason but the statement should be more important I feel like like her saying what her reasoning was should be more important than yeah than this sexualizing of women argument yeah you know, to contemporary times, that's such a big feminist issue is, like, does everything come down to female sexuality? Like, why is every, every argument, every, like, why is it all about our sexuality? Like, yeah. it does not, like, we are more than just, you know, sexual beings or beings that are yeah. meant to be sexualized. Right. And right. it's, like, while those so are... so hard to reprogram people to not think that. Exactly. It's, it's so deep-rooted. I know. It's crazy. Oof. So that's Mary Richardson. Another interesting fact about her, though, is after this happened, years after the fact, she became a fascist. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, which is kind Insane. of... Insane. Yeah, it's crazy, and it's kind of funny to me, because fascists <laughs> love to destroy art, so, <laughs> like, uh, I just yeah. thought that was kind of, like, oh, so maybe she just really liked destroying art. <laughs> but, She's like, need more, need more. From what I read... <laughs> so are over? What's next? <laughs> from what I read, she felt that the fascists had a certain, a certain something that the suffrage movement didn't oh, have. They had something. They, I don't know that that was a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, no, it wasn't yeah, like thing. Mussolini, but, but like, come on. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it kind of makes her a very interesting, complex character. Like, yeah, right. Certainly, no, it does. Like, it does. those are just yeah. those are some interesting layers to her story, and it took yeah. took quite the turn. Yeah. Um, Nothing is black and white, people. Yeah, <laughs> for real. There are no 
heroes and villains, it's all a mix. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're all in the gray area. You die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain? Oh, God. <laughs> that, sounds like, that sounds like it's from Batman. It is from Batman. <laughs> Wait. I know my what? Yeah. I, I love, love that you quoted Batman and that you knew it was from Batman. <laughs> I love Batman. <laughs> I'm not a, a big superhero person, never have been, but the Batman trilogy, what's his face is, well, I can't think of his name. Michael uh, Keaton? No. 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 <laughs> no. Uh, Christian Bale. Christian Bale, but why, the can't Dark I, Knight. why can't I think of the director's name? I love the uh, director. Nolan. Thank you. Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy is... I don't even know... Oh, girl. We are going to have they're a marathon so night. They're so good. Oh, they're actually really, really good Interesting. movies. They are good. I think you'd really like them. Someone just told me yesterday that they have a 35-year-old cousin who loves Batman and still wears, like, Batman paraphernalia and slept at her parents' house and was like, oh, I had the best night's sleep. I slept in the closet. It's like a bat cave, and she was wearing, like, Batman pajamas with a cape. I feel like, like Batman wow. is, I, he sucks people in because he's human. <laughs> That's exactly. what, no, a lot of people yeah. relate to him because yes, he's, he's completely mortal and, and Christopher Nolan does a great job, like, showing the, like, human qualities of Batman in those because I, sure. I haven't seen any of the previous ones, but I'm guessing they don't show him no. as being that, like, <laughs> human. The Michael likeable. Keaton version is an entirely different thing. Yeah, like, <laughs> he's... So great, so mortal, and yeah. Like, yeah, so and they're they're beautiful movies. Like yeah. they're really they're shot really well, and they're dark. Like they're mm-hmm. interesting, yeah, yeah. and they're dark. They and are. also Heath Ledger's. Okay, Joker. I did see that one then. So I, okay, good. So I have yeah. seen at least one. You, we need to watch the, the whole trilogy one. though. Okay. No, that's the second one. Oh, it is. Heath mm-hmm. Ledger's in the second oh. one. Oh. Yeah, the Dark Knight is probably the best, but the whole trilogy is fantastic. They're all good though. Yeah. You think it's gonna get bad? They never does. How did we get here? Uh, I you quoted, quoted Batman. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, but I have one last anecdote about Iconoclasm. This one's kind of just goofy. Like, I kind of love it in a weird way. It happened in 2012. You may have heard of it. A gentleman went to the National Gallery of Ireland, and he just punched a Monet. <laughs> <sighs> and I personally love that he didn't have an axe or and he just punched it. <laughs> like, like to me there's something so much more like he like it's like he had it out for the Monet. Like there, yeah. there's more contact, like he was yeah. just like going. He wanted it to for be it. a fair fight. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I just the second I heard about this, I remember hearing about it right when it happened, and I like wasn't mad. I just thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. The name of the painting is Argentul Basin with a single sailboat. And forty That's infuriating. <laughs> it does. It single. makes me mad. Single sailboat. Forty-nine-year-old <laughs> Andrew Shannon punched the painting as a way to quote get back at the state. <laughs> Oh. No more oh, specifics. Than, <laughs> like no specifics were given. That was about my God. During his trial, he retracted the statement and claimed it was an accident. <laughs> Good lawyer. <laughs> that he fell faint and fell into the work. <laughs> <laughs> 
Gotta love that lawyer. <laughs> oh, the God. painting was worth ten million dollars, and in 2014, because there was there was camera footage of what actually <laughs> happened, so wasn't a very good defense. But um, in 2014, Shannon was sentenced to five years in prison. Fuck. Whoa! For punching. A That's really gang. steep. That is. It I is. I read somewhere earlier that the max sentence used to be six months. There was, I think, Mary Richardson. Yeah, I think yeah. the max sentence at that time was six months. Yeah, I. I didn't even say that Mary Richardson was sentenced to six months in jail for, um, for, and this dude got five years. To be fair, he had some other stuff too. Um, so I don't know if they were tried together or, but I'm I'm sure it didn't help. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing that got added in because I was like, holy shit too. But, um, so he punched the painting and then he shouted at gallery visitors. Wow. <laughs> and then the security guard that, like, held him back found a can of paint stripper on his person. <sighs> so, obviously, he had some intentions. For sure. Yeah. Um, but you then... imagine going to a museum and all of a sudden someone starts attacking a, And, like, a yelling at you, like, <laughs> yeah. fuck all yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The mindset that I'm in when I'm at a museum compared to that setting... I know. Oh, I, I thought about so yeah. panicked. I would too, because you're they're usually very quiet. Yeah. So I mean, same thing with being in St. Peter's. Like I've been in that like yeah. if someone just jumped up with a hammer and be like, I am Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, he's so alive. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, definitely. Oh and I've read what is it? The uh what's that book about ah, the bombing in um in the the goldfinch yes the goldfinch i read that book and that scene is so descriptive of like all that horror so i feel like if i heard someone shouting in a museum i would just that scene goes on for like chapters it really does yeah i started that book twice because the first time i didn't make it through the first it's so long but it is really and once you get off that's i mean that's i feel like a book we could talk about at a later time because Goldfinch's art historical lit. Maybe that could be a bonus episode. Oh, but, that would be a good yeah. one. The Goldfinch. I also recently read On Beauty by Zadie Smith, mm. which is really good. I really lo- love her a lot and want to read more of her books, but one of the main characters is an art historian. So sure. there's some fun kind of interweaving nice. with art history. I really like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. fiction, yeah. like contemporary fiction that kind of interplays with art history. Yeah, sure. Makes me happy. As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk. But, Dudu punched the Monet, so yeah, he got the five years in prison, but like I said, I don't know for a fact that these are tied together, but I assume they were. Police raided Shannon's house and found 48 stolen items worth more than $100,000. Okay, that's why he went to prison for six years. I'm guessing they were, like, tried together. For sure. I mean, also, like... sounds like a weirdo. What was the damage? Yeah, to get the, the Monet repaired was... Was in the five digits though. So I'm sure that took forever. Maybe still. So that cost hella money too. Um, Also, 15 months after his release, he's not allowed in any art gallery. (laughs) 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 Anywhere. That's probably good. I also found, honestly, it doesn't work very well. I was kind of bummed out, but you can check it out. Maybe it's my computer. There's a website, 
punchamonet.gallery. <laughs> and it's literally just like there's a hand, like, at the, and you can move it and you can punch them. Oh, my God. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, the internet. The internet. It's a beautiful but place. Just for you listeners to uh, emphasize why the punching is so, like, kind of sincere sounding, is uh, these are the categories on Wikipedia for vandalizing art. Acid and paint. Knife. Mm. Smashing and shattering. Lipstick and firearms and other tools. So people get lipstick. creative. Yeah. Lips. Oh, like lipstick. just maybe drawing like um it, I, I just no, it, I just imagine someone like making out with a painting. Yeah, that's what it is. It's, oh. it's wearing lipstick and then kissing um oh. paintings or sculptures <laughs> and yeah. Is that mm. as an act of vandalism or is it an act of love? Um, well, it, I think it depends. Uh, one, the first example was in 1912, um, and a woman kissed the forehead and eyes of a portrait by Francis Boucher in the Louvre, Ooh. and she wanted to draw attention to herself. Very honest. Actually, that makes, okay, like, and if very, any very work honest. was going to be, like, defiled by kisses, it would be Francois Boucher, I feel like. But then, like, it's, yeah. you know, it's so sugary and, yeah. like, that, yeah. that makes sense. It does. <laughs> it does. Then there was a woman at the Oxford Museum of Modern Art who claimed that she was cheering up a cold painting. <laughs> I love it! Um, and her only, yeah, she just had to pay the restoration costs. That, that's fair. Cheering up a cold painting? Now, yeah. that's that's beautiful. <laughs> Ooh, this one. 2007. This woman, Rindy Sam, kissed all over Phaedrus, which is the all-white uh, Twombly. Ooh. Yeah, and that was estimated to be worth $2,830,000. Dang. Yeah, the first attempt to remove using about 30 various chemicals were unsuccessful. She was tried in court for voluntary degradation of a work of art. Defended herself saying, it was just a kiss, a loving gesture. I kissed it without thinking. I thought the artist would understand. It was an artistic act provoked by the power of art. A thousand pounds to the owner, five hundred pounds to the gallery, and one pound to the painter. What? I think this actually, I have That's one random. last question that I want to ask you guys, and this leads into it perfectly. Because, okay, so we're talking about modernism. We're talking about an all white painting by Cy Twombly, which mm-hmm. is already super modern and mm-hmm. kind of confusing for a lot of mm-hmm. people. And in my opinion, as I love Cy Twombly, not worth millions of dollars. That's too much fucking money. Yeah, but um, just her talking about the experience of kissing it and why she did it and how it being an act of art, in my opinion, like, I kind of buy it. If, if we buy that Cy Twombly's white painting is art, then we buy that that act is art. Yeah. And so essentially this leads me to big overarching question of all this. Do these acts of vandalism diminish artworks or do they add value to them? Ooh, that's a good question. I feel like in a lot of cases they, well, value too. I mean, I think they can add a lot to the fame or like notoriety of works of art because it just generates that much more visibility, which can connect to value. You know, like if you... If a painting is, like, kissed with coral lipstick and then it's restored and then it's later sold at Christie's and you're like, oh, that's that painting by mm-hmm. that artist. Not but it also was kissed by that yeah. woman. Mm-hmm. I'll yeah. pay for it. <laughs> that's 
That's definitely hanging up my house. And can you imagine having, let's say, even if it's been restored, ooh, ooh. or even if there's like rent, like what if that all white painting? There's still, if you look really, really close, you can see the outline of lips. Like, does oh. th- that add something? Because. To me, I think that adds something very interesting. It kind of Certainly does, interesting. But, yeah. Like, because if you think about it, what if you were to be like, oh, we could just leave it, but then that could kind of perpetuate this idea that if people did things yeah. like that, that they would be elevated. It's almost like, we were talking about my favorite murder earlier, and it's like, I really yeah. like that podcast, but there is a part of you that, like, things like that podcast, things like Criminal Minds and Law yeah. and Order and all these yeah. shows, like, there's such a fine line between, like bringing awareness to things like this and, like, trying to almost take the power and fear away from it by talking about it and hyping it up and making it, Mm. like, elevating it to something that it's not... Do you know what I mean? It's such a fine line and it kind of depends on the people. I totally agree. I think it's complicated because we also don't want to... Encourage the defacement of art. Exactly, but at the same time, these stories are really interesting and they're artistic in their own way, you know? And they added a new layer to the lifespan of the artwork, Mm -hmm. and that's pretty beautiful. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I mean, this this is very, like, coming from a personal place, like, I adore Ai Weiwei's dropping of a Han Dynasty Mm -hmm. urn, so that kind of already tells you how I feel, you know? But that comes into ideas of ownership and stuff, and he bought it and he owned it, you know what I mean? Versus very like, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that's where it gets a little tricky, too. And I think that tying back to the iconic clash and talking about motives and who it affects and how it affects them and right. all of these things are kind of important when talking about this because there are so many layers and there. For sure. Yeah. There's sure. a lot of question marks when it comes to modern day defacement of art. Yeah. Definitely. Um, it's a lot to unpack. It really is. Yeah. Do, do we have anything else to say about iconoclasm? Mm. I don't think so. Mariah, do you have anything to say about it? <laughs> our our friend is Mariah's just hanging out, watching. You, you know? may have heard a faint giggle at certain points, but other than <laughs> well, that, she also saved fun. the day with the Christopher Nolan thing. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 that was Mariah. <laughs> oh, oh, this is a good one. Um, this is from our friend Renee. She sent us wine before, so. She's certainly our friend. Shout out, Renee! Um, so this is in response to our The Art of Boxing episode a while back. Hey babes, I just finished listening to the boxing episode. My husband is a boxing promoter, so having lived this sport or avoided for 25 years, <laughs> it was interesting to hear your thoughts. Of course, as I was sitting on the freeway, I kept jumping into the conversation. Some of my thoughts. Yes, it is very much a show slash performance. Yes, when my husband matches a fight, he can pretty much tell you how many rounds it will go and who will win. Every now and then, there is an upset. Styles make fights. I don't enjoy it personally, but I do see it as an art. All the best. Renee. Well said, Renee. Yeah, that was a really... Um, Good perspective. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't know anyone that d- boxes or is supposed to. It. <laughs> yeah. My dad tried to teach me how to do a proper punch when I was like, you know, 13. Just like, just so you know, don't, don't put, put your, your thumb, thumb in your hand. And that was <laughs> it. Not the same lesson. <laughs> when I was little, um, I told you on the boxing episode, I took taekwondo for yes. a long time when I was yeah. little. And we were in the basement one day and I was like, dad, I'm going to show you something I learned. And he was like, okay. And I stepped on his feet and I just like punched him. <laughs> 
Oh, my God. And he was like, just made an uppercut motion for you to be And it was something I learned in Taekwondo. And he was just, like, so, I mean, he was, like, proud of me. But he was just, like, so taken back. Because I, like, legitimately, like, hurt him a little bit. Like, he did not. Oh, you punched him, like, in his chin? Yeah. Oh, I thought, like, you were a child and you, like, punched him. Oh, oh no 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 okay. no no! So I stood on his feet. Hardcore. <laughs> it was something. This dad. No, it was something I'd learned in Taekwondo where you stand on the assailant's sure. feet sure. and then you yeah you like uppercut them in the yeah. chin like you yeah. punch him and I just yeah. like punch him and I mean I was little. Thing, but still, he just didn't see it coming. Yeah, and it actually yeah. like caused him exactly to how like. To go. <laughs> yeah, and he was just like he was like kind of mad at first, but then he was like more proud. For than sure. For sure. So yeah, that's I mean that's that that's really the extent of my experience <laughs> with those kind of things. I love getting emails like that. I really yeah. love these like response emails to totally. the things we say because a lot of our ideas just come from a place of interest, not necessarily mm-hmm. expertise. So yeah, we awesome. really yeah <laughs> we. Really Really appreciate any feedback we get. Thank you so much, Renee. We're going to schedule that beach house yes. visit very yes. soon. Yeah. That's going to be amazing. Thanks for listening to our Iconoclasm episode. Make sure to check out our Patreon. Yes. Patreon.com slash Art History Babes. We started dropping extra episodes. And they're good. They're quality. Top notch. So check out our Patreon. Write us a review on iTunes. We've gotten a bunch of great new ones. We really appreciate it. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Art History Babes Podcast, Twitter. You know how it is, arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye? <laughs> Sounds like you're saying, what was his name? Gavon. Go- oh, Gavon. <laughs> I was like, Guy Fieri? <laughs> I'm watching so much Guy Fieri lately. Did you guys, did you guys see that? I posted it on our Twitter. It was someone put Guy Fieri's face yes. on Renaissance. It's amazing. amazing. It's amazing. It was perfect. It's amazing. Oh, my God. From I love all these little leaves falling out here. Just like so pleasant. You can hear them. (laughs) Just a little crackle, crackle, George. Geico presents. Oh, not again. Another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> the Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit Geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.